episode 456 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that nobody agrees with. Not our fellow panelists, not our institutions, not our clients, our friends, our family, or our pets, and maybe not us three weeks from today. Joining me for the News Roundup, Jim Dempsey, who lectures at the UC Berkeley School of Law and is a policy advisor at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center. Martin McCarthy, who teaches technology law and policy at Georgetown and is a senior fellow at Brookings. Nate Jones, who's co-founder of Culper Partners and formerly with Justice and the National Security Council. And of course, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur for the Day's program. Let's jump in. So the godfather of artificial intelligence left Google warning of the dangers of AI. That's the headline in really basically both the Post and the Times. Mark, what did we learn from this article? Not really a whole lot about the real dangers of AI. Hinton's famous. He received all sorts of industry awards. He's contributed a lot to the field. But his concerns are these existential concerns that have much more to do with science fiction fantasies than the real issues that are confronting policymakers. And so he had to leave Google because his basic pitch is, you know, we may be building the robots which will take over the world and kill everybody. And, you know, no company wants to have that coming out of the mouth of one of its employees. But the real so you, issue- you, let me stop you there because I you kind of dismissed it. It's science fiction, you know. But a lot of very serious people are very worried about this, and it is not implausible to think that if you give AI a goal, it will move heaven and earth to achieve that goal. And if it knows how to manipulate our political system, our physical systems, why wouldn't it? use that manipulation to achieve the goal you've given it. Sure, and this is, but this is the science fiction fantasy. You say to the, to open table, please get me a reservation at a popular restaurant, and open table has been equipped with general artificial intelligence, and so it says, well, the best way to get a reservation is to create this huge disruption throughout the whole city so that a third of the people who have reservations cancel them, and then my friend, who I'm working for, can get a reservation. And it all assumes that they can create these sub-goals, right? You give them one goal, and they'll invent something else as a way to get to that rule. And it's the same fantasy as the paperclip fantasy. You tell a, a generally intelligent system to put together a manufacturing operation for paperclips, and it, it destroys the earth and depletes all its resources and kills the human race to promote production of paperclips. I mean, the assumption behind this is some kind of ability to invent new goals, subsidiary to the goals that have been given to you, plus the general capacity to do just about anything. And so it is a fantasy. We're nowhere near that stuff. I mean, even the ChatGPT people who invented uh, their system say it's not even reliable enough to give you basic factual information. So I, I think these concerns are way premature. They always have been. But now is an opportune moment for people who've had these concerns for some time to air them while the camera is rolling and everyone's paying attention. So don't you think that the lesson of ChatGPT is that AI always looks kind of hapless until it looks awesome and that we're constantly being surprised by what it can do? And so if, after all, the whole point of AI is to get machines to come up with solutions that we have not come up with. 
and it's going to do that. But some of those solutions are going to be solutions we didn't come up with because they're so shocking, right? They're, they're going to cause massive disruptions just to get us a place at the table. And are you sure we're going to have a warning that suddenly AI is influencing in the outside world in order to make sure it achieves its goals? And it has simply decided that getting turned off or having its power-seeking behavior interrupted is going to prevent it from achieving its goals, so it has to defeat yeah, that but I mean, effort. Think again what ChatGPT does. I mean, it, it, you feed a question into it, and it gives you an answer based on predicting the next word in the sentence. It's not going to suddenly start playing chess. It's not sure. going to start launching a car that it can drive. It's not going to start walking around and manufacturing things. It's a general domain area that it covers, but it's a narrow purpose. It's just designed to do one thing. And it can't sort of say on its own, independent volition, I am now going to do this other thing and I'll reprogram myself to do that other thing. It's not even close to that. It is yet true. All these fantasies are built upon that idea. Fair that enough. The machine will reprogram itself. It, fair enough. But we are certainly going to give it the ability to influence actual events in the outside world, right? That's what, one of the things we're going to do with the AI. But then it, it, do we give it the ability to say, okay, if I'm going to be doing this, I have to have a subroutine that does that. And that subroutine requires me to learn how to drive a car and to learn how to break into military installations and all that other kind of stuff that the food of fancy. So I think of the AI that was supposed to, I was supposed to use blocks and the blocks could move and it was supposed to move the blocks across the line before anybody else could do it. And instead of playing the game, it just stacked them up and knocked them over until it hit the wall at the other side. Yeah. And that's a subroutine as you define it, but it was completely unanticipated. And if it had instead involved killing off a few people in, in Chicago so you could get a restaurant, I'm not sure the AI would have seen it differently. Yeah, I mean, that's in the context of a game, which is well-programmed and well-understood. And so you've got a narrow domain in which it can rethink some of the objectives it's been given. But that's entirely different from operating in a free-form fashion in the real world, where it needs to interact with thousands and thousands of different systems and subsystems in order to carry out this kind of weird fantasy of you know, destroying civilization to produce paperclips. So, Nate, Stuart, I know you want yeah. to get in on this. So, <laughs> I right. do. And I don't entirely disagree with Mark, right? I, I think some of this is somewhat fanciful at this point. But to, and I think, you know, some folks like Jeffrey Hinton are throwing these things out there in some ways to, to call attention to the broader issues and to try to spur people to action, right? And so I think in that way, it's a bit of a distraction to get hung up on this at this point, because some of it is somewhat far off. But I think what you are seeing here is a growing chorus of people who are expressing concerns about the implications of AI in various ways. There's, I think, increasing agreement about what those risks and concerns are. And even the, some of the leading companies who, who are you know, doing research in this area, who are releasing some of these products to the public, are saying the same things. And some are even, you know, to their credit, trying to put some guardrails in place. But, you know, from my perspective, that's all well and good, but it's not their jobs, right? And I do think that we need to have a discussion in the public and in the government in particular and in policy circles about what we're going to do about some of these things. Because as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Stuart, you know, the longer you wait and the more 
you know, of these products we get, the more embedded they get in society, the harder they become to regulate in any way. And we've seen that with past iterations of technological advancements. And so, you know, I think what I would like to see is for policymakers to get out a little bit ahead of this. And I think we're seeing opportunities for them to do so, whether they can, you know, seize those opportunities is a different question. And I think we'll come to that in a moment. But but I well, okay, so let's go there. The White House had a meeting with a very small handful of AI execs, the ones who are whose companies are clearly associated with leading models. And I kind of said, you know, be careful out there and announced some initiatives whose relevance to the AI problems we've just been discussing wasn't perfectly clear to me. Maybe it was to you guys. <laughs> well, look, look, Stuart, they were back in the real world, at least. I mean, they were focusing on some of the initiatives that they've been involved in over the last several years. They made reference to the NTIA study on accountability, and they talked about the NIST risk assessment framework and the AI Bill of Rights. Uh, and they were really reiterating the policy that's been in place you know, since the Obama administration, which is that we have to regulate AI and the big risks here are largely in specific domains. So we want the specific regulators to get a handle on this stuff and they should be introducing AI expertise into their regulatory structures and make sure that they're technically competent to, to deal with those sort of issues. I think there's something else going on on the Hill that Schumer is beginning to look at a proposal for regulation, and he may be building on the NTIA proposal to put in place something that looks a little bit more like regulating, you know, general purpose AI or AI as such, a sort of horizontal approach that gets away from the sectoral idea. So there may be some real attempt to do what Nate was suggesting, which is to focus not just on the specific applications of this, but the AI risks in general, which would bring us, you know, pretty close to the way the European Union is beginning to address this, where they, they put in place a, a risk-based horizontal framework for trying to assess the different real risks that these new systems and technologies pose. Yeah. So I, I of course, had my own take on that, as you probably saw. <laughs> I, I did a CyberTunes version of that meeting in which the president comes in and says, you've got to eliminate bias. And the executives say, don't worry, when our ChatGPT starts out, it, it sounds like a low-income, moderate, politically moderate Catholic or Protestant, but by the time we're done training it, it sounds like a rich liberal from the West Coast. And of course, the administration says, well, our work here is done. <laughs> Thank you to the Chinese Communist Party and its attempt to impose socialist values. It's the same sort of thinking. So that, yeah, that was very funny. But I mean, Lena Khan got the message. I mean, you know, she came out with that opinion piece in the New York Times recently, where she said, basically, there's no exemption from current law for artificial intelligence. If you're trying to engage in consumer scams, you can't say, by the way, I use this new artificial intelligence technique for doing the consumer scams. The law doesn't apply to me. You know, right. So I think she's sending the right message in that area. The question is whether that's enough or whether we need some new framework or a new approach that'll handle the more general risks. Yeah, I wanted to make fun of that because I, in general, I think Lena Khan's kind of a little off base. But the article itself, it wasn't bad. It, it, it wasn't bad in part because it identifies 
things you could do with AI that would be bad and doesn't say how we're going to stop it. And so if you agree, you know, that AI rewards bigness, that's for sure, or that it could be used for price fixing or for giving each of us a separate price based on how much it thinks we want a particular thing, or that it can be used for fraud or that bias exists or that uh, there's private data in there. All that is true. The idea that she has a notion for how to solve some of those problems is more controversial, but it was a, you know, it was a fair critique of things that regulators should be at least nervous about. She was uh, speaking for herself, obviously, but also in a, a press conference the week before, she was speaking for a group of federal regulators, uh, people from the EEOC and from the uh, CFPB and other regulators that have the equal employment opportunity laws under their jurisdiction, the fair lending laws and so on. And they all had the same message. If you're using these new techniques to discriminate in employment or in lending, you know, you can't say I've got a new technique for committing old crimes and so the law doesn't apply. And so we'll see if that's enough. I hope that the agencies are doing more than just talking about it, but I think they're on the right track to try to apply existing law. Boy, I I really hope not because already most of those agencies are in the quota business of saying, if you don't meet certain quotas, we're going to call it this. This is just standard old-fashioned law. It's not new. It's not they're inventing something. No, you are absolutely right. They imposed these quota rules under the guise of discrimination years ago. I agree with you. But they're going to be expanding this to anything that uses AI and doesn't produce the right results. That's going to turn out, I think, to be a much bigger problem. Stuart, your quarrel is with discrimination law, not AI. You think current discrimination law is terrible and should be revised. What they're trying to do is apply existing law to new techniques. And you want to go back and say, well, no, it's okay to discriminate in some cases. You know, relax a little bit about no, this. No, no. I, well, I, it is not discrimination to fail to meet a quota, in my view. I recognize it's discrimination this. to say, I don't hire any people except white guys. Yeah. And that's what these AI systems can do. And so you want to make sure that you can't but say, it, it, it is, it is it hires only white guys, but I did it using AI, so it's okay. I'm sorry. There are plenty of employment qualifications that end up having a discriminatory effect, as you would describe it. If you say, I want people who finish in the top 5% of their class as coders, you're going to get plenty of Asians. You're going to get plenty of white guys. You're not going to get a lot of black women. That's all existing law. And there are ways of dealing with this disparate impact analysis. And then there's a reply and there's legitimate business interest. You go through all of that stuff. All I'm saying is that you apply regular, ordinary, old-fashioned garden variety tools to assess these systems. And at the end of the day, the company cannot say, I'm sorry, I broke the law, but I did it with AI, so it doesn't apply to me. That's all the, the, the current... Uh, yeah, the, I, I, it, there, there will be problems with that because ordinarily under discrimination law, you get to say this was a bona fide qualification. Yeah. No, because all you can say is the AI says these are the best employees and the AI took into account a whole bunch of stuff that I don't fully understand or am not well, explain how do you know, How do you know it was not a racially biased a standard then? Well, you know, that if, if, if you believe that... I just did it. If you believe that everything in American society is fundamentally racist, then you win that argument. But if you think that actually using real life experience and how people think their experiences turned out as a basis for making a decision, if you think that's 
a good basis for making future decisions, then using AI and machine learning for that purpose is exactly what you should be doing. Here's a good example of what New York City is doing. They're saying if you're going to use one of these advanced algorithms to make employment decisions, the first thing you have to do is do a bias analysis. You've got to do a disparate impact analysis. And you can't say, well, I'm using AI to... Yeah, that, and that's, the, the disparate impact analysis is the beginning and the end of the quota. You say, do you have proportionate representation of people in 16 different ethnic groups and a variety of sexual practices? And if you do, then it's not biased. And if you don't have the right numbers, it's inherently biased and no, you, you don't lose. lose, Stuart. You don't lose. Yeah. The burden shifts under existing law. Yeah, the burden shifts back to the company to show why the factors they are using are in fact relevant and why the disparate outcome is in fact justified by their business business interests. And companies win those cases. Companies consistently win those cases in the traditional world. What Mark is saying yeah. is, is we have an existing legal structure for allocating burdens of proof and those same processes apply whether it's AI-based or human-based. And the companies are going to win a lot of those cases, just as they win them in the real so world. They just as they win not, them in the real world. In the real world, they have a particular measure that they've adopted, you know, like you have to be in the top 5% of your coding class at MIT. And then you justify that. But if you use AI, and AI goes through all of the successful applicants in the past, the people who come to work at your company. Well, that's a mistake, a really by, good yeah, job. But that's the mistake, says, by the way. That's we, the we, mistake we, that people make. I, I know that there's the usual bullshit about, oh, the racists who made the no, decisions they weren't to racist. promote those they guys. They weren't racist, Stuart. I think you got to break out of that framework. They made wrong the decisions. Is, they made biased decisions. Yes, they didn't do it because they were racist. I mean, I don't think we need to go down that road. Well, that that is how that is defined, how that dialogue is defined. But at the end of the day, what are you going to use that is a better determination of who's going to be a good employee in this job than people who have been good employees in that use job? Top in the five past? In, you can use argue there should be something class else. At MIT. Use that. Or use top five in your class from the top STEM degree granting universities and, and, or other factors like that. The whole point of using AI for that purpose is the AI is likely to find that actually there's a small group of people who aren't top 5% in their coding class who are even better, and we should prefer them. But you won't find that by just asking people, because they all remember the really the large number of top 5% people Stuart, who did I, well. I, but the AI will find a whole bunch of other factors that are worth considering. Your obsession with this issue, Stuart, fascinates me. <laughs> Yeah, because I think we're going to pay a, a heavy price for this. I think you're you're wrong. Of all, I mean, of all the things we have to worry about with AI, certainly bias is legitimate and overcorrection is legitimate. But I just think you're a dog with a bone on this one, and you're not going to let go. Of I, I am. I, it absolutely. It is true. I am a dog with a bone because I think we're never going to get a chance to debate it. Because in fact, there's going to be upstream regulation that doesn't even allow us to see what's going on. When you say you can't use a bias test. People are going to want to go out and get somebody to tell them your test is not biased. They'll have people come in and that's examine the battle of the, the experts. That's the battle say, of the experts that occurs in every single employment discrimination case. Every single test that's ever yes. been designed has devolved to a battle of the experts, and corporate America has won a large percentage of those cases. So I don't think corporate America really cares how much discrimination no, it, doesn't. it does. No, no, I don't think losses. it does either. But we have a set of rules developed in the offline world and in the pre 
AI world that I think, at least as a starting point, are not going to produce the kind of perverted, inverted kind of results that, that you're arguing for. You're predicting. Okay. All right. Well, talk again well, two, I, years. I, you know, that, that, two years from now. Dog bone thoroughly gnawed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I just wanted to mention this the case against Kokava that the FTC brought, which is more in line with my sense that Lena Khan just doesn't know how to pick her cases. This was an FTC case against a company that collects location data. It's a location data broker. And the FTC said, well, that obviously bad things can happen if you have location data and people's privacy has been invaded. Those bad things could happen and we win. And the court said, no, actually, I'm going to dismiss your complaint because you really have not made the case in the complaint that location data by itself is going to be privacy harm. You've got to show that the information is actually going to be used in a fashion that will harm these people. That would include de-anonymizing it. So the court kicked the case out. It, the FTC may be able to come back and revive that case, but I do think it shows some questionable judgment about what cases need to be litigated and an eagerness to make law that, that the FTC is going to end up regretting. All right, let's stay on AI and regulation just for a minute. Mark, after a grand gesture of saying, by God, this shall not pass, the Italian data protection regulator has, I think, backed down and let ChatGPT back into the market with some face-saving changes in practice. Yeah, I think that's basically it. They, it was a big fanfare of trumpets, and they said the company doesn't have a legal basis for processing user data. They can't operate here and so on. And, and now I think you're right, Stuart. They largely backed down. The one thing they did say on that legal basis question was they said, uh, you know, you, if you're going to have a legal basis for processing the user information, it can't be that it's a matter of just using the service. You've got to get explicit consent or you've got to claim legitimate interest in order to justify that. And so they've got, they put that stake in the ground. Where it goes from there, we're just not sure. And I think the larger group of privacy regulators in Europe are going to get into the act and it won't be left just to, to Italy to sort all this stuff out. But for the time being, OpenAI is back in, in Italy and the second thing that is coming down in Europe for ChatGPT to worry about, though, is the, the AI Act itself, the new piece of legislation that the European Union is trying to put together. And they're getting pretty close there. I mean, they've got a provisional deal from April 27th. They're going to vote on it in committee in the parliament on the 11th. They're going to get a final to a parliament in mid-June. And then they go into the trialogue uh, with the council and the commission to try to resolve any of the remaining issues. So, you know, this thing may be done by May of uh, 2024. And ChatGPT has really created a whole lot of issues at the last minute. The real question is whether ChatGPT is going to be subject to all of the special requirements as a high-risk AI system. And the answer is one way or the other, it almost certainly will. They're going to have even to though that. it's perfectly obvious that most of the things you do with ChatGPT are very hard to describe as high risk. I know, and that's what that's their counter argument is saying. You know, this is a kind of general purpose thing. It's used in a thousand and one contexts. 
go after the specific uses. But I think they're going to put it in some fashion uh, in the same category as you know, fundamental AI systems or general purpose AI systems. And they're going to have the whole range of external audits, testing for predictability and interoperability, whether they can be corrected, you know, what kind of safety provisions they've got in there. So all of the AI Act's strictest requirements are going to be thrown at ChatGPT, I think. But you got to remember that th- those requirements do not really produce a document that can be reviewed by the public. It's a process. It's a risk assessment process and a certification by outside agencies that say, we did all these tests and we think it's okay. The public doesn't really get to see these underlying risk assessments. So it's not clear that it's going to be all that onerous for a company like ChatGPT to pass these things. We'll see how they work in practice. Every certification authority in Europe is, you know, is rubbing their hands and foaming at the mouth for the possibility of being involved in this. <laughs> but, you know, we'll see how it turns out in practice. But the risk for ChatGPT is that it will be subject to these higher requirements for security clearances and other clearances. So Europe's problem is it has no company, not a single one that has pockets deep enough to get at the front of the parade or even close for AI. Europe's hope, I think, or the hope of European AI researchers is that somehow open sourcing a lot of this will undo some of the advantages that massive investments have. And there's some evidence to suggest that what people have done with the leaked version of Microsoft, or sorry, Facebook's model suggests that you can do a lot with less data and more sophisticated algorithms. But there's an organization that's in in favor of open source AI that is saying that GDPR is casting a pall on their ability to do that work because they're going to be treated as data controllers and therefore responsible for everything that the data processors do with their open source data, which means that basically they'll be liable for all the consequences of their open source inventions. And so they're asking the EU to rethink how GDPR applies to AI. I thought it was interesting. I don't know how seriously to take this. It does show, I mean, Europe is just really between a rock and a hard place on this one. GDPR probably says there's a whole bunch of things you can't do. You can't use all of these big, large assemblies of data because you don't have consent and you certainly can't verify consent from everybody whose data is in there. And the data is all mixed up, but it could pop out at any moment. Who knows? And therefore, it's a violation of GDPR. I, I do think the uh, EU no, is going to have trouble. If, if there's a consent requirement here, ball game's over. It's like the identification, biometric identification law in, in yeah. Illinois, where you have to get affirmative consent before you can use training data. Um, it's really going to be a mess if that's the way it turns out. The loophole is legitimate interest where the company could claim that I'm not getting consent, but I've got a really good business reason and a public interest reason for using this information. And so that's my basis for collecting and using the information. And you would have thought that a reasonable regulator would have said, well, sure, you've got a good reason and this was all public anyway. So those two things... Uh, that, mean that that we but the stinger in that one, though, is that if you do use legitimate interest under GDPR, you've got to give the person involved the right to object. 
and it's not an affirmative consent, but you know, you've got to give an opportunity for the person whose data is involved to say, no, I don't, I don't want to be used for that training purpose. Please stop. Uh, and that could create procedural obstacles that make it hideously expensive to actually take advantage of all yep. the data that's out there. Okay, so while we're forming new privacy laws, actually Indiana, Montana, Tennessee are all in the process or have passed new privacy laws. Jim, you talked about this about a month ago. What's new in these new laws? So we talked about this going back on March 27th when we discussed a little bit the Iowa and uh, Utah laws. As you say, since then, we've had laws from Montana, Indiana, and Tennessee leading to the clever headline, 10 makes nine, with the Tennessee law being the ninth state comprehensive privacy law. Now, you just look at the names of some of the states, Tennessee, Montana, Indiana, Utah, Iowa, these are relatively conservative states, so you have to ask what's going on here. And these are not the Californias of their, of their region. And these are largely industry-supported bills. They are quite... On the one hand, they are comprehensive. On the other hand, they are narrow. They have long lists of exemptions, too long, I would argue. The Indiana law, for example, exempts employee data, government agencies, nonprofits, institutes of higher education, and any entity or any data that may be otherwise covered by any other privacy-like law, even if those are not comprehensive laws of human research, data, etc. Well, and no, none of those, to be fair, none of those institutions are the reason we Correct. privacy laws. But Facebook, you're creating, right? but you're creating this sort of bizarre patchwork that different data is going to be subject to different rules. It's always fascinating looking at these statutes to see what lobbyists earn their pay. The Indiana law, for example, exempts public utilities. No other law that I know of exempts public utilities. Exactly. Exactly. The gaming industry lobbyist in Indiana gets the lobbyist of the year award for exempting facial recognition when used by riverboat casinos from the Indiana law. But beyond that, you know, these, as I say, these are laws that the industry is comfortable with. They are opt out laws, not opt-in or prior consent laws. In fact, they're not even consent laws at all. They are notice laws with opt-out. Narrow definition of sale, you get the right to opt-out of sale, but that involves transfer for monetary consideration. And it's I think you've left out the most important one, which is there are no private Well, lawsuits. that's exactly. No private lawsuits, which of course is the consumer dream and which is in the California California law, well, not really in the California law, but in the federal law that's been proposed. Well, the BIPA well, exactly. has not to be a exactly. gusher for uh, the, 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 the plaintiff's uh, bar. Facial recognition law. Now, I'm not sure that industry is getting what it wants here. The laws have enough dissimilarities among them. They're all basically on the same framework. Leave aside for a minute the California law. But all of the other recent ones, Connecticut, Colorado, Iowa, Utah, Indiana, Montana, Tennessee, Virginia, all roughly on the same, I assume corporate drafted. I don't actually know who's exactly the, the pen, holding the pen here, but all on the same template. But then each one gets tweaked a little bit state by state 
For example, in some of the state laws, Tennessee, you get the right to correct inaccuracies in your data. Under the Indiana law, you only get the right to correct inaccuracies in the data that the consumer himself or herself previously provided to the controller. Some of them require the recognition of consumer signals sent through you know, a browser setting. Others of them don't require adherence to the consumer signal as expressed in the browser setting. So you still have a crazy quilt, and I'm still not sure any of this is going to motivate Congress to preempt these state laws. I think that's clearly the corporate strategy is to get enough state laws passed that Congress would have to act and preempt them all, minus private right of action. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Meanwhile, I think, at least from a compliance perspective, the landscape is getting more complicated. And then on top of that, you have this Washington state health privacy law signed by the governor just a couple weeks ago, which goes in the opposite direction. It's a very strong sort of pro-privacy law. It's a prior express opt-in law, including requests to delete fascinating set of issues historical around who owns medical records. Are they, mm. There are actually some, a number of states have laws saying that the medical records belong to the doctor. And others say they yeah. belong to the hospital. And I think the theory was you didn't want the doctor leaving the hospital and taking the records with him. They had to stay at the hospital. But if you start deleting records, fascinating issues around sort of medical liability, medical malpractice, lawsuits, you know, I think people haven't thought that one through. Yeah, well, well, because HIPAA was so obviously a good law, it turned out so well, there were no unintended consequences. Let's do well, some more of that. And I mean, look, HIPAA, HIPAA is outdated. If you look at the HIPAA rule, it's outdated in many ways. It hasn't been updated now in, I guess, close to 20 years. A lot of attention has been given on the Washington state law to this geofencing prohibition. This is related, of course, to state bans on abortion and punishment for women or others seeking abortion services or providing abortion services. So the Washington state law specifically says it is unlawful for any person to implement a geofence around an entity that provides in-person healthcare services. Geofence is defined in the law where such geofence is used to identify or track consumers seeking healthcare services or collect consumer health data from consumers. Yeah. That to my mind that's a response exactly. to a, another blue and Yeah, moral no, I think that's right. Although I think we're likely happened. to hear more about geofencing as we go along. We've seen of course use of the geofencing warrants in the prosecutions of the January 6th rioters. So perhaps uh, someone will pick this up on in terms of weaponization of governmental powers angle. Yeah, although I think, you know, there there was left-wing criticism of geofencing until January 6th, right, and now right. they've all had to shut up. And the right-wing, they just don't have the same kind of interest in these abstract issues. They're much more likely just to pick sides and say, well, the yeah. FBI was picking on us. So I don't, I think geofences, that's done. That That is now well-established in law, and I don't think- Well-established with the Google-style three-stage rules? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Google has done law enforcement an enormous favor by being 
uncooperative up to a point. And then basically and drafting rules to, that, that they convinced the government to follow yeah. in terms of this three-step process, exactly. which is, I think, a pretty good process, personally. Okay, Pornhub has blocked mm -hmm. all of Utah from its site because it can't meet Utah's age verification requirements. Mark, what is there to say about this? <laughs> well, a lot, actually. Yeah, it's much more, I think, that it, it wants to begin the process of pushing back, not just against the Utah statute, but against the wave of similar statutes around the country. And it's using this technique of, of blocking their own site to Utah residents as a way of publicizing its effort. I mean, one of the things that happened right away is that it was reported that VPN uses are on the rise. You know, the evidence for that is a little sketchy as search trends and the self-serving right. reports from VPN providers. But it's worth noting that, I mean, last year, Louisiana adopted a similar law and Pornhub let it go because Louisiana lets the users store their government-issued IDs on the mobile phones and it was pretty easy to comply. But it saw a significant drop of traffic. I mean, even the adults don't want to, you know, identify. Register. <laughs> Say, I, I want to register for a porn license. Yeah. Yeah. Can I please see this dirty stuff, you know, government? And But the laws are spreading all over the country. And Arkansas, dozens of other states are considering them. Now, the, as part of this group representing the adult entertainment industry has filed a suit against the Utah statute. It's not yet supported by the wider free speech community. But, you know, Jim knows more about this than I do, probably. But this has been litigated several times, going back to Reno versus the ACLU. And I had understood the idea that at least for porn, age verification requirements seem to be unconstitutional, so long as there's a less intrusive method of protecting kids, such as device-level filters. So we may see that fight again going up to, to the higher courts and that may threaten all of these age verification statutes insofar as they have to do with porn. So I noticed that the Pornhub said what we support is device level age yep. verification. What does that mean? If you've got, if you're old enough to have a phone, then it's okay? Well, I mean, there are all sorts of ways you could try to get age verification information put onto your device. And oh. so that, that's exactly what, what Louisiana permits. They allow you to store your government issued ID on your phone. And then that can be transmitted to a website for easy and simple verification. Much of the other states don't allow that. And Utah, you know, had that kind of thing initially provided in its law, but then it backed off of it. And they have, they're going to go through a regulatory process to figure out what kind of age verification might work. But I, I do think this thing is going right up to the courts to, to revisit this whole question of age verification and porn. I think the Supreme Court in the 90s was like we all were, enthralled to how cool this technology was and how many great democrat democratizing features it was going to make possible. And everybody's a little more cynical now. And so I actually think that this court in particular is much less likely to just repeat the, oh, you can't do any of that. You're going to reduce the, the internet to what's suitable for a 10-year-old, and we can't have right. that. I think that's all gone. No, uh, I, I agree with you, Stuart. You know, Reno versus ACLU is sort of showing its, showing its age, and this whole question of what is technologically feasible, the court was sold, whatever it is, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, the court was sold on the notion that the kind of blocking and age verification was not possible. Right. 
And it wasn't exactly. No, I think the case on the technology as it existed then, the case was correct. But the, the trouble was the court did partly base its rationale on a definition of, or at least an understanding right. of what the technology was capable of doing. Now what the technology is capable of doing is very different. And it's, you know, so, and obviously so the, I, the techno-triumphalism has Could you, d- d- dissipated right. in the wind. It certainly has, yeah. yeah. I, I have a, a legal question. That law was struck down because of an understanding about the technology could do, but it's still on the books, I assume. Could you revive it mm. and say, well, you know, uh, we'd like to, we just like to run it past the court again because everything has changed? That's fascinating. I don't know. I think, okay. I think you'll see this in other statutes as well. This whole edge verification thing is coming back for another run. I mean, Utah's got that other statute, remember, about parental consent for access to social media sites. That's right. Um, and, and so that requires age verification. And the California law on age-appropriate design has age verification. The Blumenthal bill, you know, at the federal level has it. So all requires some form of age verification. I think this issue is coming back for another run. Yeah. Okay, let's, uh, let's move along because we're running r- low on time here. Jim, Merck's insurers were arguing that they didn't have to pay for the cost of not Petya when it took out, oh, you know, cost the industry billions of dollars. And Merck said, well, that was an act of war and we don't cover acts of war. They lost. They lost at the trial court about, I don't know, nine months, a year ago. And now just last week, they lost at an intermediary state appellate court. And the, you know, the, at some level, this comes down to not cyber law, but insurance law and a reading of the insurance policy. Of course, those of us who started reading insurance policies after the outbreak of the pandemic realized that most insurance policies have a clause excluding pandemics and most insurance policies have a clause excluding acts of war. Russia uh, was behind, not Petia. The insurers argued that this was an act of war, and the courts weren't having it. The court said, no, no one has ever really previously said that sub-threshold of force, cyber of offense, is an act of war. And by the way, I thought it was interesting in the lower court ruling, by the way, you know, insurance companies have known for a long time about state-sponsored cyber activity. They could have excluded that. They could have expanded their clauses and excluded anything that was state-sponsored. They didn't. Therefore, this is not an act of war, even though it's state-sponsored. Therefore, insurer must pay. Now, what are the long-term consequences of this? Maybe another thing driving uh, insurance companies out of the cyber insurance arena. Or at least getting them to, to rewrite them. I mean, their, the, the uh, policies are renewed every year. They've long since so, rewritten them to, you know, the general corporate liability policies have long since be, been rewritten to exclude cyber losses at all, pushing people to cyber specific policies. And now the insurance companies are going to have to be more careful in drafting those. Okay. Mark, the FTC has a proposal mm-hmm. to go after Meta and to forbid them from basically making money off of data they get from kids. Right. You know, it, it sounds like the sort of thing you say, well, why not? But the legal basis for it strike, strikes me as a little aggressive, at, in, you know, typical of Linacon's FTC. I think a little aggressive is a good way to put it. I mean, this is based on a 2020 settlement with 
uh, with Meta, and uh, that was based on a, a 2012 consent decree, which in turn was based on Section 5 unfair and deceptive acts and practices. So it's got a legal basis, but uh, there is a question. And the other commissioner, Alvaro Bedoya, he, he went along, but he issued a statement that said, wait a minute, I'm not sure there's a nexus here between the consent decree we're operating with, Facebook's behavior, and the penalty we're putting in place. I want to you know, withhold judgment on that one and see what the record shows. So I think Facebook is going to be in a good position to say, you know, Alvaro Bogoya, you're right. There's no connection here. We did some stuff wrong, but it has nothing to do with kids, and the penalty has nothing to do with whatever we might have done wrong. Now, yeah, I, I, would, I do think yeah, the FTC might be over its skis on this one. I, I think you might be right, Stuart. He would be the swing vote if there were any Republicans left on the FTC. They haven't appointed. Well, it, 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 it might be, I mean, it still might be a two-one vote. So you know, who knows which way it's going to go? But by the way, it's important to note that this doesn't affect the larger FTC authority to promulgate privacy rules, right? Which is still considering. It's still got full Magnuson Moss rulemaking authority to put in place privacy rules. But this does affect its authority to single out Facebook and say, we're putting in place special rules just for you. I, I think it's the whole business model of the FTC, which is to catch somebody in a position where you know they're in the middle of a PR disaster. They come in and say, we're going to make that worse for you unless you sign up to a consent decree. Then you sign up to the consent decree. If they find you violated it, they make things even worse for you. In this case, what they're saying is, well, we found a violation and we're going to add to all your requirements, even though what we're adding to it doesn't have much to do with the bad thing you did. I mean, the bad thing they did was they said, we've got an app that will not allow kids to talk to people other than contacts that the parents have approved. And then the FTC said, oh, well, wait, if you're in a group chat, there could be people in that group chat who are not on the contact list. That was a lie you told to those parents. And I frankly think that's a that's pushing it a little. And then to say, and so our remedy is you can't make any money ever from kids' data. Long shot. I think it's a long shot. We'll see what the record shows. Facebook's got 30 days to say you're crazy, and then can go to court if it if it doesn't get satisfaction. So we'll see what, where that one plays out. But there, there might be a dissenting vote in this one in the final rule. Yeah. Okay. I want to recommend this article by Kim Zetter, Solar Winds, a real breakdown. Nate, you read that. What did you think? Fascinating. You know, I tried to to sift through some of the palace entry and finger pointing and kind of get down to, you know, what should we be taking from this article? And to me, the facts and the thrust of the article really sort of get down to two important longstanding questions we've been struggling with for a long time, right? And really, I think, lay that bare. And the first is whether we're organized well enough to quickly and effectively detect, investigate, respond to, so on and so forth, these types of complex attacks and, you know, this is when I was at the NSC, we did an after action review of the underwear bomber, right? And we ruffled a lot of feathers. And I think, you know, a lot of people get defensive when you start asking questions about this. And to me, the key question here isn't whether you should have identified this earlier, but rather this question of whether we are prepared to do that going forward. And I think, you know, there are a lot of reasons for concerns. I think there are a lot of alarm bells in this article from the early d discovery of an intrusion that appears to have been related in 2019 by the security company Veloxity 
as well as you know the DOJ Mandiant Microsoft investigation of the DOJ intrusion that happened six months before SolarWinds was really detected and appears to have also been somewhat related. And, you know, at least some of that seems to have been shared, according to DOJ, with CISA and others within the government. At Nobody that time. realized how important it was. Right. And that's where, you know, there's a when these kinds of things happen, there's so much information out there and so many disparate hands that you know, it's difficult for people to make the connections that you would hope they would be able to make. And you're so seeing- I, it's pretty it's pretty clear that, you know, the Cyber Safety Review Board was set up with the an expectation that SolarWinds would be its first kind of accident report where they would go in yeah. and figure out everything that went wrong. And it was a great idea because it was a very complicated story with a lot of people who didn't really want to talk about it. And it now looks as though what Kim has done is found some people who obviously don't want to talk about it. It looks like the FBI yeah. really doesn't want to talk about the fact that they knew about this and didn't follow it through to yeah. the, what they knew about was that solar winds was hit at box was having a weird conversation with somebody else's computer. And it seemed to be related to a, a compromise and they didn't do enough maybe, or maybe the people who got the report didn't do enough, but we could have stopped this earlier probably I mean, they, if we'd done they, that what i think they did is they unplugged the infected yeah, um right. server or whatever it was and but you're right they didn't really continue to follow up on it they didn't treat it as something that may be a bigger broader problem that could have be- affected others and that's where i think you know you're seeing you know i think this is not unrelated to why you're seeing the incident reporting requirements, why you're seeing some, you know, reorganization of governmental entities and trying to improve cooperation between them, certain entities within the private sector. But this this goes much deeper than some of those things and really, I think, requires us to rethink how we do this from soup to nuts in some ways. And the other thing that, you know, sort of comes in at the end of the article, which is, I think, in part there to put the fear of God in people is, you know, this discussion of the fact that they still don't know entirely what the motives and intentions and what the real damage assessment was here. Or how successful it was. I mean, this is right. the impression was, this is not the first time these guys have pulled this off. They're there's, too, there's it's both too smooth, too good. They did it before and we never saw it. Yeah. And a lot, you know, a number of their targets during this, the SolarWinds attack were other widely used software products. And so if you could get in and screw with their systems for compiling code, you would, you'd have a whole bunch of access right now. Right. And, you know, when it comes to things like doing these impact assessments, trying to assess the motives of these adversaries, they're not the things that you can always uncover with data either because, you know, in this case, in some instances, assessment or retention periods were limited and they couldn't go back very far. And then there's, you know, the motive thing is always difficult, obviously, but they are important for predicting what might be next, right? And being prepared and informing future investigations. And it feels to me that's something we're still not particularly good at and requires in in some cases, and you know, my my industry friends and clients don't like to hear this, but it, it requires collection of information that they're incapable of collecting. Right? You saw this in the Russia investigation related to the election, where it was an all source assessment of what they were doing and why. That you know, you could pick some of that up from the data that private companies were collecting, but there, you know, there are other sources of 
intelligence like human intelligence that become an important piece of that full picture that in, in a lot of cases only the government can really do. And so I think that's, you know, in terms of, you know, identifying some goals or areas for improvement, that's another one that people really need to think about and figure out how we can get better at this. Yep. So like Cicero saying that Carthage must be destroyed, I will continue to say on the program, the Cyber Safety Review Board must look at solar winds. And one, one thing that I do want to say on behalf of the FBI, and it's kind of amusing, the fact that they found something and pulled the plug on that machine apparently led the Russian uh, hackers to panic and pull down all of their tools, pull them out so that they still had access, but they had not continued to use it precisely because they overestimated the FBI's ability to find them. And so we we got a benefit out of that event, even if we didn't actually catch them in the act. Yeah. Okay. Very quickly, we've got just two or three more to go. Mark, is Canada going to lose access to newsfeed from... Meta and most importantly from Google as a result of demanding that Google pay for its links to news services? I think this goes under the category of, I think I've seen this film before. It's the same playbook that got trotted out by the companies when Australia had Because it same, worked for them. It, I mean, it, 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 they got a deal out of it. They, you know, the, the bill calls for negotiations and a mandatory process if voluntary agreements are not reached. And that's the same structure as the Australian one, and, and the companies did the same trick. They said, oh, we'll pull, pull the plug on new services in Australia, and that uh, forced a, a compromise, a last-minute set of concessions. And so they're doing the same thing all over again. It's a negotiating tactic. They'll get some last-minute concessions, and the law's gonna, the bill's going to go through and become law. Okay. So those of you who are worried about losing access to Canadian porn, not a problem. Okay. <laughs> Joe Sullivan, the Uber security chief who was convicted of misprision of felony and, and obstruction of justice, has been sentenced. He got three years probation, which seems actually fair enough because, you know, there were some, there's room for a question about the decision to prosecute him. The judge gave this long peroration about how Travis Kalanick probably looks like he ought to have been defendant too. And the people who wrote letters to him about uh, why Sullivan shouldn't go to jail didn't really understand how bad it was. And the next time, you know, he's given him probation this time, but the next CISO he sees in front of him who's done the same thing is going to get jail time even if he's the Pope. Okay. I think that the short answer is you don't want to do this. Three years probation is not a pretty thing after all of the disruption that Sullivan has encountered in his life. But I think the judge probably came out about right. I agree, Stuart. But the question is, what is it that Sullivan did that you should not do again? And there's a lot. Yeah, that right. is. There's a huge yeah, I agree. debate and churn in the CISO community, uh, the bug bounty community, et cetera, about what, it, what he was being punished for. My takeaway is that if you are under investigation, in this case by the FTC, and your security practices are being scrutinized, over a prior breach, and during the pendency of that investigation of your security practices, you have another breach, you have a duty sort of to, you have a duty to tell the regulator, hey guys, you're looking at our security practices, by the way, we just had another one. 
That to yeah, but not if you're the CISO. You should ask your lawyers. You say, well, "I've got somebody, this thing." You know, yeah, you decide what. Well, no, this case proves that the CISO needs well at least needs to be very clear to his lawyers of telling them, "I am passing the buck to you. You guys need to make this clear yeah. to the government." It, it, the problem was that Sullivan had been the deputy general counsel. He was the expert on all this stuff. He was going to get deferred to, yeah. and he did get deferred to, and he was very clear that he did not want this disclosed. So I think- but it, To me, it's in the context they, they saw of an ongoing investigation of your security practices, and I would caution yes. against reading yes. the case beyond, beyond more that. than that. I agree with you. One more benefit of having the FTC's investigations well, never end. All right, last point, or maybe two. There's a guy out there who is who has compromised a whole bunch of Russian intel agency Bitcoin wallets and has been advertising the fact that they are GRU and SVR wallets and spending the money to do it. It's kind of funny because he's building uh, the outing, the doxing into transactions that he is, where he's spending money, kind of basically burning it. So it's, it is very funny. The mystery here is how those wallets were compromised, and eventually we'll figure it out. It could be an insider. I think it's probably more likely somebody just figured out a flaw in the wallets, but I could be wrong about that. So that's fun. Just for our listeners who haven't seen this, yeah. this is kind of news. Rick Salgado and I wrote an article for Lawfare on why CISOs ought to support renewal of Section 702, because it turns out that Section 702 is being very aggressively used against ransomware gangs and other hackers. And it's a really potentially very valuable tool. I'm pleased to say Metacurity gave it the award of one of the week's best long reads. So take a look at it if you're interested in that. Topic. Good piece, Stuart. Good piece. All right. Jim, thanks. Mark, Nate, great to have you. I want to mention to our listeners, we are in the market for somebody who wants to do sound engineering as an intern. You don't have to come to Washington. You don't even have to show up in an office at all, as Mark Chernozik, who does our sound work now, has demonstrated. Just send a CV or a bio to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com, not steptoe.com. And if you've got questions or comments or feedback, or you want to really cement your chance to get the internship, leave a review or send comments to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. If they're entertaining, we'll read them on the air and it'll give you a leg up in the interview when that we talk to you about the internship job. This has been episode 456 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. Dog bone thoroughly gnawed.